Church exists to shine as light in our homes, in our community, and in our world. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. You know, one of the things that just stands out to me so much as I listen to their, their story and think about what God has done in, in, in the Greens' life and, and, and what he's doing in the life of, of Weston is it makes me think about how Joel and Demia never had to command Weston to love them. They didn't say, you will love us now, and then he responded with love. What happened was their lives unfolded in such a way that they, they brought him into their home, and they loved him, and he had brothers and sisters, and, and, and he receiving all of that love, not a little bit of love, but a whole lot of love, responded by loving them back. And we, we see that unfold, and it's beautiful, and we say that is exactly what happens in a family. And you know, as I, I thought about that this week, as I, I thought about their story uh, for this morning, I, I was reminded of the fact that, that not only is that exactly the way it happens in family, but that's exactly the way it happens in the body of Christ. See, in the book of Romans, Paul writes this incredible theological treatise. He begins in chapter 1, and for 11 chapters, he talks all about the gospel. He talks all about how you and I as sinful people are made right before God, not on the basis of the good things that we do, but on the basis of what Christ has already done for us in our embracing that gift in faith. For 11 chapters, God demonstrates to us his love for us. Not a little bit of love, but a whole lot of love. And Paul then admonishes us as he begins this this turn in chapter 12. A turn from how much God has loved us to what is an appropriate response for the people of God to God's love. Paul makes that turn with this giant therefore statement. Therefore, because all of this is true that I've talked about for 11 chapters, Paul says, I'm getting ready to to tell you what is an appropriate response for believers in Christ. When Paul makes that turn, when he drops in that therefore, he doesn't call them merely on on the basis of duty. He doesn't call them on the basis of fear. He doesn't just command them in a crude way. But Paul urges them on the basis of the mercy of God. It's as if Paul says, remember, church, God loves you not a little, he loves you a lot. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters in Christ, because of the mercies of God, to lay down your lives before him and have your minds transformed by his Spirit's power. That is the logical thing for us to do. And we began that uh, last week in this series that we've entitled, Therefore, looking at Romans chapter 12, looking at just that, how Paul appeals to us by the big love of God, by the big mercy of God, to lay down our lives before him. We began that study last week by looking at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12. And we're going to continue it today by looking at chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. Uh, but before we, we open up our Bibles and look at Romans 12, 3 to 8, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today, and thank you for the time to be together. 
Thank you for your word that instructs us in your ways. Father, we don't have to gather today and guess at what kind of a God you are. We don't have to guess at what you want in response. We don't have to to guess at what the appropriate response is to your mercy that has been detailed over 11 chapters in the book of Romans and over the entire scope of God's Word. Father, we, we, we come to you today having direction from you on what is appropriate for us to respond. And so, Father, I, I pray today that your Spirit would just highlight your text and help us to see what we're to do. Father, that, that I would be your instrument today and you would teach all of us, including me. I pray that you would protect me from saying anything that you wouldn't want said today. But if I do say something you wouldn't want said, Father, I pray that it would just quickly be forgotten. But Father, any words that I share that you would want us to hear that are your words and your truth, I pray that we would remember them, we would believe them, we would walk forward in them in the power of your Spirit, we might be changed more into the image of your Son. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I I want you to imagine for a moment that you are going to sell your house. Imagine you're going to sell your house. And for some of you, this is uh, terrifying, the thought of this. Uh, Just the process, and it's long, and it's big, and, and you're thinking about this. For others of you, you're like, this is total fantasy. I don't have a house to sell. Um, but, but for wherever you are in that process, I want you to think for a moment that you own a house and you are now going to try to sell that house. Uh, what would be the first thing that you would do with a house that you were trying to sell? Well, I think that one thing that would be good to do very early on in the process of selling a house would be to talk to somebody who understands real estate. Maybe it's a realtor Maybe it's a friend that has some experience in that area. Maybe it's utilizing online tools that are out there for you. But, but you need to get some insight on real estate to help you get a good estimate of what your house is worth. Be very important to enter into the sale of your house with a good understanding of what your house is worth. Because if you don't understand what your house is worth, if you have a wrong estimation of its value, you would make some serious mistakes. I mean, just think about it for a moment. Let's say that you, that you overvalued your house. Let's say that you thought that your house was worth $500,000. Uh, for me, that would be a gross overvaluation of my home. Um, but, but imagine that, that I'm thinking my house is worth a half of a million dollars, $500,000. Well, if I thought that my house was worth $500,000, it, w- it would lead me to make some bad decisions about the sale of my home. I mean, first of all, it would lead me to, to, to put out ads that my house is for sale for $500,000, and if anybody actually showed up in response to that ad, they would laugh in my face, and I would have to endure that uh, because I had so grossly overvalued my home. And it might even lead me to make some really poor decisions. If I thought my house would actually sell for $500,000, it might encourage me to go out and look for something else and, and borrow more money or spend more money based on the value of a home that would, was never worth that to begin with. There's a danger if you're going to sell your house and overvaluing it. But there's also a danger in, in undervaluing your home. Let's say that you thought not only, not that my house is worth $500,000, but let's say you thought my house is worth $500. 
Well, if you listed your home for $500, I can tell you this much, you're going to sell it. You're going to sell it fast. If you want to sell your home for $500, we could sell it right now. Just show of hands. We could take care of it because it would be so undervalued. Your, your understanding of your house would be so undervalued, you would lose all of that value that your home had. See, if you're going to sell your house, having a good estimate on what it's worth is critical to you executing the sale in the right way. It would be good to get that done on the front end. You know, as I look at the book of Romans in chapter 12 and the verses we're going to look at today, verses 3 to 8, what I see is that Paul, in encouraging believers to lay down their lives in service to their God, he encourages all of us on the front end to have a proper estimation of our contribution to God's kingdom work. If we want to be involved in what God is up to, one of the things we need to do first is we need to have a proper understanding, a proper estimate of the value of our contribution. Because it's possible for us as people to overvalue our contribution. It's possible for us as people to think that, that what we're doing is more important than it actually is, to think that our contribution is more critical than it actually is, and we need to have a proper understanding that we don't overvalue our contribution. But it's also possible that, that we would undervalue our contribution to God's kingdom work. It's possible that we would think that, you know what, who am I to do anything that God would have me to do? I'm just going to lay back and, and, and sit on the sidelines and do nothing. And the, and the fact is, when Paul writes to the Romans, and it's preserved for us today, what God is telling us is not to, to overvalue ourselves or to undervalue ourselves but in fact to be somewhere right in the middle with a correct estimation of our value in God's kingdom agenda. Um, kind of like Goldilocks, right? Um, the porridge is too cold, the porridge is too warm, there's porridge that's just right. Well, what is the just right estimation of ourselves when it comes to God's kingdom agenda? We're going to see that today in Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Romans 12. We're going to spend all of our time today in these verses here from verse 3 down to verse 8. As we look at Romans 12, verses 3 to 8 this morning, we're going to see two things about having a proper estimation of our lives. Because God has been merciful to us, therefore we respond in a certain way. One of the ways in which we respond to the mercies of God is laid out for us here in Romans 12. 12, 3 to 8. We're going to see two things this morning. The first thing we're going to see is this, that we are not to overestimate our contribution. We're not to overestimate our contribution. We see this in verses 3 to 5. Let's read verses 3 to 5 and see how that plays out for us. Paul writes to the church in Rome and he says this, he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And in these three verses, Paul is encouraging us to not overestimate the value of our 
contribution to God's kingdom work. And he he gets right to it at the beginning of verse 3. See, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, for by the grace given to me, Paul is calling upon his apostolic authority here. Paul knew that in the grace of God, Paul was set apart for a special task. Paul began his letter to the church in Rome in in chapter 1 and verse 1, saying that he was called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Paul understood that he had this special role in the early church to establish churches where there weren't churches, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to Gentile people. And Paul went all over the earth spreading this this gospel, all over the the, the earth that they knew, the, the Mediterranean Sea area. Paul went all over planting churches everywhere he went. Because of that, Paul had this great sense of calling on his life. And in here, as Paul begins to address people to have this proper estimation of their life, he's calling upon that authority to do so. And he says, based on this authority that I have, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, saying, every person who's a believer in Christ is going to be the recipient or the directed target of the advice that I'm getting ready to share. Anyone in this room right now who has trusted Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins, what he's getting ready to say applies to you, and it applies to me. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, calling upon his apostolic authority, Paul is going to give us a direct piece of of advice, a direct command to tell us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We'll look at, at how many times the word think is used in verse 3 alone. He says right there, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Thinking is very big word in this verse. Uh, But sometimes I think it's helpful for us to maybe put a synonym in there that the original Greek text would allow for this word think. I think another word that we could use to translate the word think there would be the word to estimate. To not estimate our value as higher than it really is. I mean, think back to to the home analogy. I think that this word think here was used in the Greek language, to talk about having an estimate for something, an estimate of a value for something. And Paul says, don't overestimate your value, church, but to have a proper estimate of your value, to think with sober judgment means to to think rightly about your value to God's kingdom agenda. He's he's challenging us to to think in an appropriate way about ourselves. And the reason why this is important to the church in Rome is because the church in Rome was made up of a bunch of people. And people have a tendency to think more highly of themselves than they ought. And by that, I mean they think more of themselves than they think of others. They put their own wants, needs, and desires above others. They put their own contributions as more valuable than others. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and by application, he's writing to us, and he's saying, have a proper estimation of your value. Don't think that your contribution is more valuable than others. And he gives us a reason or a rationale by which we would not 
estimate ourselves as more valuable than others. He, he says that in the last part of verse 3. He says that we are to have sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, when we read that, that phrase here translated, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, uh, it is an appropriate translation. It is a possible translation to say that, that it means just what it says there. If this is what it means, then it would indicate that all of us have been given a different measure of faith. Some of us have been given this much faith. Some of us have been given this much faith. Some of us have been given this much responsibility. Others have been given this much responsibility. But regardless of, of, of where that is in the picture, that we need to respond based on what God has shown to us. It's, it's a, a possible translation here. But I think there's another translation of that phrase that might even be better in this instance. Instead of thinking according to the different faith that we had all been given, another very appropriate translation would be to say that according to the common faith that we all share. Under that understanding, it would be to say this, have a proper estimation of your own value and contribution to the plan of God by measuring yourself not against each other, but by measuring yourself against the faith that we believe, by measuring yourself against the corpus of truth that we have just laid out over 11 chapters in, in, in Rome. Basically, what, what Paul was saying, I think, here is he's encouraging us to not overly value ourselves by comparing ourselves to others, but instead to compare ourselves to the truth of the gospel, which places us all on a level field at the foot of the cross. You see, when we compare ourselves to others, we might be tempted to think that, that I'm more valuable than you, and you're more valuable than me, and we find this pecking order and this BCS rankings of, of Christians and, and all that kind of stuff. But I think what Paul is saying is that we, we want to, to identify ourselves, we want to, to f estimate our value, not on the basis of how we relate to one another, but on the basis of how we relate to God. And our relationship to God is the same for all of us. All of us are sinners. All of us are saved only by the work of Christ. The, the, the good that all of us have is only found in our nearness to Christ, not in our own individual talents and abilities and, and experience, etc., you see, we, we find ourselves having a unity, we find ourselves having a proper estimation of ourselves, not by comparing ourselves to others, but by comparing ourselves and being measured by the stick of the gospel. When we compare ourselves to him, then we have a proper understanding of where we fit in his plans. It's important for us to think about that, um, and, and in order to, to help us with that, I'm going to give us a little illustration um, let's, let's just say for a moment that I were to uh, describe the height of my son, and most of you know that, that, that we have a son, I would say my, my son is the height of one stick. And if this was the stick that you were thinking of, since I'm thinking of measurements, you're thinking of a ruler as a stick, you, you would immediately go, oh, how cute. He's so small and tiny. You know, when my, my son was born, he was born at 31 weeks. He was about this size. Um, but if I told you he was four and a half, you would go from, oh, that's so cute, to, oh, I'm so sorry. What's happened? He's, 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 just, he's just a foot long. Um, but in reality, 
When I said he was as tall as a stick, what I meant was he's as tall as a yardstick. He's about three feet tall. You see, having the proper instrument of measurement helps us to understand the value of something better. It helps us to communicate and understand truth better. Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he writes to us, and he says, don't overvalue yourselves, but measure yourselves against the right stick. Don't measure yourselves with each other. Measure yourselves against the truth of the faith, against the truth of the gospel. And as you think about us having this this common truth of the gospel that places us on a flat plane before before God, uh, look at what he continues to say in verse 4 and 5. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. He emphasizes there, we'll talk about the diversity in a moment, but he emphasizes there the unity that we have. We are individually members of one another. We talk about valuing ourselves against the truth of our faith. We understand that we are all a part of one body in Christ. That we, though very different in many ways, have at a foundational identity level the same identity before God. It's the identity of Christ. We are in His body. When we understand that we are in His body, we understand that we're together in this. See, it's hard to overvalue ourselves compared to others when we understand the truth of the gospel. And this is an important thing for us to remember about not overestimating our contribution because we are people that have a tendency or a propensity to value ourselves more highly than others. Uh, Part of the reason for this is because inside of us we have this thing called the flesh. Uh, What the flesh is, is the flesh is a 24-hour, seven-day-a-week, 365-day-a-year, live-in PR agent for yourself. You've got a part of you that is a very outspoken proponent for you, for your wants, needs, and desires. And when it comes to how you relate to other people, our flesh rears up and wants to argue that that we are more important, we are more valuable, we are more right than everybody else around us. And the reason for this is because this fleshly PR agent on the inside of us is very familiar with us and makes us the standard by which everyone else is judged. I think, think about this for a moment. This is true of all of us. Who do you consider to have it rough? Who do you consider to have a difficult life? Typically, people who have it worse than you. Who do you consider to have it good? People who have it better than you. Who do you consider to be poor? People who have less than you. Who do you consider to be rich? People who have more than you. Um, Who do you consider to to have, you know, whatever? I mean, it's it's, it's all based. Who do you consider to be fast? Who do you consider to be slow? Who do you consider to be tall? Who Who do you consider to be short? It's many times it's based off of us as the median. 
If we evaluate the world based on us in our flesh, then we're going to rank and overvalue ourselves and times undervalue ourselves and various things. But But if we value a situation, if we value us and our contribution to God's kingdom work, not on the basis of our flesh, not on the basis of us as the median, but on the basis of the gospel as the standard, then it makes all the difference in the world. Because when we value things with us at the median, we end up finding ourselves in all kinds of strange situations. We find ourselves, if you're wondering, if you struggle with an overestimation of yourself, I mean, I struggle with an overestimation of myself. If you're wondering, you know, how you might, what are some things that might show up in your life? One of the things that would show up is, is jealousy. Jealousy is present in the life of someone that is overvaluing and overestimating the value of themselves. You know, jealousy that looks at a brother or sister in Christ and says, boy, they, they have what I want. I wish I had that. Look at their ministry. I wish I had that ministry. Look at the opportunity. I wish I had that opportunity. Look at where they live. I wish I had that house. Look at their family. I wish I had that family. Whatever it is. Jealousy rears its head when we become focused on us. And I don't mean just that you're, you admire something about somebody, but it becomes a fixating capacity that causes you to look at them in a negative way because you're comparing yourself to them. Jealousy happens when we begin to place us at the median and, and judge between us and in them. Another thing that happens is when we overestimate the value of ourselves and become overly fixated on ourselves, we begin to think that we've got to do it all. We think that we've got to be able to do everything. We, we beat ourselves up if we can't teach as good as that guy, or if we can't show compassion as well as that guy, or if we can't give as much as that person or family or whatever it is. See, when we get fixated on ourselves, we begin to have this belief that we've got to be able to do it all because we're the extent of our universe at that point. Another thing that happens when we become fixated upon ourselves and we overestimate our own value is we begin to um, resent people that don't do things the way we do them. You think about that. If you're somebody that shows a lot of mercy and compassion... The temptation for you is that anybody who doesn't also show a lot of mercy and compassion is obviously an inferior person. When you're somebody that grasps concepts and can share them with others, if you begin to you know, look around and other people can't grasp them the way that you can, the temptation would be to think that you're better than they are. When you give a certain amount that if somebody doesn't give that much, that, that they're, you're better than them, whatever it is. But see, the reality is that when we measure ourselves not against each other but against the gospel, those things go away. I mean, think of how silly the idea of jealousy is in light of the gospel. I mean, if it's true, which it is, that we're a part of one body, then how silly is it for one part of the body to become jealous because another part of the body is excelling? You know, last night I had... Um, some ice cream. Um, it, was, it was really good. Um, and, and as I had this ice cream, you know, I'm putting ice cream in my mouth. But while I'm putting ice cream in my mouth, my foot wasn't rebelling. My foot wasn't complaining. My foot wasn't saying, where's my ice cream? That would be really odd. Um, 
why did my foot not complain when my mouth got ice cream? Because my foot and my mouth understand they're a part of the same body. When my mouth gets ice cream, everybody's blessed. There's more of me to go around the more ice cream that I have. It's, it's, a, it's a body picture. Um, jealousy, when, when measured against the gospel, doesn't make sense for believers to be jealous of others because when the body excels, the body excels. When measured against the gospel, we understand that, that the way the opportunities that, that I have are, are such and the opportunities that you have are such that, that we can trust that God can work through both of them because we're part of the same body. See, we should not overestimate our own value. We shouldn't judge others on the basis of ourselves, but we should hold up the right stick, the measurement of the gospel. We shouldn't overestimate our value of our contribution. But the the second thing is true, and that is that we should not underestimate the value of our contribution. We shouldn't underestimate it. We see this in in verses 6 to 8, where Paul writes and he says this. He says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You see, in in those verses, we have this incredible call that we are not to under- estimate the value of our contribution. Because God has blessed us, God has equipped us, God has provided us with His Spirit so that we might be involved in His ministry. See, it's possible to think too much of ourselves, but it's also possible to think so little of ourselves to think that God would never use us. But Paul follows right on the heels of saying not to look, think too much of yourself by saying, look, God has given you a gift so that you might serve other people and God might work through you. Right at the beginning of verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. You have been given a gift by God, guaranteed. 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4 and verse 10 says this, it says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. If you're a believer in Christ, it is not optional that God may or may not have equipped you to serve Him. God absolutely equipped you to serve Him. And you know what? He equipped you different than He equipped me. If there's anything that we know about spiritual gifts, they're, they're, they're given to you, not for you, but so that you might serve others, but they're different from person to person. It says having gifts that differ. And what's so beautiful to me about that statement of having gifts that differ is that actually the diversity within the church makes all of us necessary. You know, if we were all the same, we wouldn't all be necessary. Think about Star Wars, Stormtroopers and, and Clone Wars. Caroline, I appreciate that. that was, you're very excited about, about Star Wars reference. I appreciate that. Um, but you think about the, the clone troopers or the stormtroopers in Star Wars. They're all exactly the same. They're, they're, they're clones of each other. And so if you take out 50 of them, you just bring in 50 more. They're all the same. 
They're not all ultimately valuable. They're just valuable as a number. The church isn't that way. We're not all the same. God made us all differently, thus making us all necessary to His plans unfolding as He planned them to be. He didn't give any one of us all of the gifts. He dispersed them amongst us so that if we wanted to see God work in the way that God desires to work in this place, it would require all of us functioning together. Isn't that awesome? That means that you are valuable in the plan of God. You are necessary to God's plan in this place. Don't overvalue yourself, but don't sell yourself short either. God wants to do something in and through your life. And, and in chapter 12, he, he mentions several of the different gifts that are possible that, that, that people have. He, just, he mentions the gift of prophecy. He mentions the gift of service. He mentions the gift of teaching, of exhortation, of, of contribution, of generosity, of leadership, and of mercy. And, you know, it would be a great message for us to dive in and just unpack all of those, but we're not going to today because I think what's interesting is sometimes we look at these lists and we think they must be exhaustive. But the reality is every time Paul talks about gifts, he mentions different ones. You know what that tells me? We don't have an exhaustive list of the gifts. Paul's using these for illustrative purposes. He's saying there are various kinds of gifts that God gives. Here's some of them, but not all of them. The idea is not so much that we name the gift the right name. The idea is that we understand that God has equipped us to serve Him in a way that is specific to us. God got creative when He made you. And He empowers it through the work of His Spirit so that you can be a part of His plans in a particular way. And because that's what I believe this understanding about the gifts, um, it's important for us to think about how God has gifted us and to begin to serve Him. And, you know, when you talk, when you talk about understanding our gifts, one of the things that, that happens a lot is we want to administer some kind of test that will tell us what our gift is. And there's a number of really good ones out there where you can get a test that you fill in the little bubbles on the Scantron, and then it comes back and it tells you what your gift is. But you know what's, what's fascinating to me is that when Paul said this, the Scantron wasn't invented yet. People understood their gift before there ever was the test to understand what your gift is. So how did people know? Well, they knew because they interacted with each other as the body, and as they interacted with each other and as they served one another, people would say, you know what? You seem to be gifted at blank. When you do this, God seems to use you in my life. And I think that it would be helpful for all of us to think, if you want to understand how God has gifted you, begin to serve others and then ask them, how's this going? How does God seem to be using me? You know, as a matter of fact, I would challenge each of you, if you feel comfortable, to have a conversation with a couple of people this week that know you and are around you, and just ask them, how does God seem to to use me in your life? It may be helpful to talk to people uh, who are here this morning, so they're not going to think that's a strange question. Um, but but uh, you can say, hey, my, Pastor Mark asked me to ask some people, how does God seem to use me in your life? Think, think about that. It's an opportunity for, for you to contemplate how God has gifted you. And when you, when you begin to understand how God has gifted you, this passage is very uh, clear in that we're to begin to do more of that. 
We're to employ those things to give. All those, all those statements, if you're going to lead, lead with zeal. If you're going to teach, teach. If you're going to exhort, exhort. What he's saying is maximize your gifting. When you understand how God has put you together, lean in with two shoulders. Trust that God will use that and do those things. Because when you don't, you're undervaluing the fact that God wants to use you in specific situations right here among us. See, we have a God who loves us, not a little bit. We have a God who loves us a lot. We have a God who has given us not just a little bit of grace. We have a God who extends to us amazing grace. We have a God who has not given a little bit of mercy. We have a God who is extremely merciful to us. And therefore, in light of that mercy, we're to lay down our lives before him We're not to estimate ourselves as more valuable than we should. We're to measure ourselves against the truth of the gospel. But then we're also not to sit on the sidelines, but we're to understand that we have value in the kingdom agenda of God, that he wants to use you and he wants to use me in different ways in the lives of people. And we're to run forward in faith in response to the mercies of God, allowing him to serve others through. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up now. And uh, as they come up and, and prepare to lead us in a closing song, um, I want to just mention something about the song that we're going to sing. Uh, we're going to sing a song called You'll Come, and it's a song that is powerful on a number of levels. There's some great lyrics in this song. But, but one of the thoughts of the song is that we look forward to the day when Christ will return to this earth, and that's absolutely true. It's our, our blessed hope. But in light of what we've just seen, we also realize that He's already come and that He's come in the sense that His body is at work around us. His gifts are dispersed among His body that we are individually members of it. And so not only can we look forward to what God will do in the future, but we also can look forward and look for what God is doing right here among us. Uh, Please stand and join us as we close this song.